scripture for today is Exodus chapter three. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. And Moses saw that the bush was on fire, but it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. Now when the Lord saw he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And at this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I've come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of Israel of the Israelites has reached me and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent you. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. The name you shall call me from generation to generation. This is the word of the Lord. So I'd been uh, meeting with Fernando off and on for years, and we'd grown particularly close. And so when the news came that I had an impending move across country to Portland, we decided it would be only appropriate to get together for one last hoorah, like a big goodbye. And it was this sunny, crisp fall Saturday, movie set in New York kind of weather. And we were driving up to Montauk, which is this famous little town at at the tip of Long Island that all of the uber-wealthy folks take helicopters to to avoid the traffic. We were sitting still in that very traffic. Uh, Hank and Simon, who were four and two at the time, had fallen asleep in the back seat. And Fernando and I were talking the way that you do on a road trip, just kind of weaving in and out of different topics, letting the dialogue wander. And I asked about his kids. Because we never talked all that much about his kids. They were both grown up uh, in their early 20s, a son and a daughter. And he hadn't seen them in over a decade, but he would occasionally tell me stories of when they were Hank and Simon's age and he was in their lives. That was before 
a string of prison sentences and a bout of drug use and a long absence that their relationship had just never quite recovered from. And so I asked about them, their names and where they lived and what they were doing, and he just got quiet. And eventually I looked over and there were tears just streaming down his face in the passenger seat of my car. He was trying to respond, but he couldn't. The way that happens to you sometimes when emotion is getting in the way of the words that you're trying to articulate. Fernando had served three separate prison sentences. He had used and sold drugs. He had a thousand nights that he could not remember. And then he met Jesus, and we had celebrated God's forgiveness together. But this, the dad he wished he was, wasn't, and still couldn't find a way to forgive himself for not being. This was that untouchable place inside of him that in his mind, at least, grace could not touch. And we all tend to carry some area of our lives like this, some place that we can't quite forgive ourselves from, and so we assume that God can't forgive us either. We all tend to hold some part of ourselves, whether we're aware of it or not, whether we can name it or not, outside of the imaginative reach of God's grace. And then there's a farewell road trip with an old friend, and you're talking about whatever, and he asks about your kids, and the words won't come, but the tears do, because that simple question is an uncovering of that part of me that never gets to see the light of day. We all, every last one of us, are Fernando in that passenger seat. And this whole burning bush story is about exactly that. It's about God remembering, us forgetting, and ultimately how God gets his work done. So uh, Exodus, that's the simple title of the current teaching series that we're in. We've broken the Bible's second book into 13 episodes that we're making our way through over the course of the summer. And today's story is the first major scene centered on the character of Moses when God speaks to him from within a burning bush. Now, depending on your level of familiarity with the biblical narrative, that premise will either seem overly familiar or outrageously strange. And so I wanna start by getting us all on the same page. In the first couple chapters of Exodus, the author is linking this story with the Genesis story, the grand story of creator and creation, the human story of origin and meaning and purpose, the story that we all find our place within. And there's hyperlinks all over the first few verses of Exodus, anchoring this story as a sequel back to the story of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Hyperlinks so obvious to the original Jewish audience, no one would ever have to point them out or explain them. And so reading Exodus next to one of those ancients would be like me going to see the newest Harry Potter film next to someone who dresses up in costume and goes to conventions. I've only ever read the first book, and that was a really long time ago, and so I imagine that during the film there'd be all sorts of connections that person is making to previous episodes in the story that would be entirely lost on me. Exodus sets this story in something like a new Eden and then begins to introduce the major characters. There's Pharaoh, who's made in the mold of the serpent in the Garden of Eden. There's Israel, a nation of people living in bondage to the serpent that they're powerless to escape on their own. That's the human condition. And then a new character, Moses, a child miraculously spared of the bondage. And then the scene cuts to decades later when the infant Moses has grown into this 
weathered, old, bearded man. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it was not eaten up, the Hebrew Bible reads. The author of Exodus has gone to such great pains to connect this story back to Genesis to frame the Exodus story as a recreation set against the backdrop of Genesis creation. And then right here in the defining moment, we're told, so there's this one tree that catches the eye, but it was not eaten up. It's almost that famous Genesis line, when she saw the tree was pleasing to the eye and desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some of the fruit and ate it. Only in recreation, it's the tree was not eaten up. So Moses approaches the burning bush and encounters God, the creator who still hasn't given up on his wayward creation. It's a moment of hope, like the most tragic scene from Genesis is replaying itself, only this time maybe the plot will proceed differently. Only this time maybe the Genesis tragedy could be redeemed in an Exodus triumph. Has anyone seen that Netflix series Made? Man. It got me. Honestly, I'm not much for shows. I don't love a TV series, but this one got me. And the reason I don't love a TV series is because there's a common formula that all of them tend to follow. It goes something like this. Episode one, draw you in. Episode two, slow down and develop the characters and themes. Episode three, thicken the plot with drama, and then you can't watch, stop watching it whether it's going anywhere or not. And yes, Made followed that exact formula. But sometimes, even if you know what the director's doing to you, you still like it. <laughs> and I liked it. That's the Exodus model. Chapter one, draw you in through Genesis connections. This story is a sequel. It's the sequel to the story of all stories. Chapter two, slow down, develop the characters. You've got Pharaoh introduced in the mold of the ultimate villain. Moses, a child whose birth is fraught with imagery that God just might be making a way through the ultimate pain of the human experience. And at that precise moment, the credits roll on chapter two. It's a great cliffhanger ending. It's that moment when you're sitting on your couch thinking, I've got to go to bed. I'm a responsible adult. It's after midnight on a Tuesday. I've eaten an entire bag of Skinny Pop, which entirely eliminates the whole branding of the product. <laughs> and, and in this time that you're going through this, this internal monologue, that little Netflix thing expires, and the 10 seconds have gone by, and the next one starts playing, you're like, you know, I should just watch the first 15 minutes just to see what happens, and then it's chapter three, thicken the plot, here comes the drama, and you're up till 2 a.m. on a Tuesday. That's what today is. Here comes the drama. Are you ready? All right. God remembers. Now keep a finger in your Bibles in Exodus 3. That is where we're going to spend the bulk of our time. And I want you to follow along on the page with me there. But we will begin in the previous chapter, in the final verses before our teaching text. Exodus chapter 2, verse 23. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning. Now stop for just a second. Because this, what I've just read, God heard their groaning, that's a theme. It's another one of those hyperlinks that the Hebrew imagination would see instantly, but that 
the majority of us might need a little bit more help. So if we rewind back in the story to Adam and Eve's sons, Cain and Abel, you might remember that famous moment early in Genesis when Cain kills Abel. It's the first act of injustice in all of recorded human history. And at that exact moment, the voice of God breaks into the story saying, listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. So injustice makes a sound God hears. Then if you keep on reading, just a few chapters later, you come to the equally infamous story of Sodom and Gomorrah, those ancient cities whose names are broadly recognized, even among people who have never cracked open the Bible, and that's usually because of sexual perversity. And that is part of the story, but it's not the whole story, and I would argue it's not even the primary biblical theme of the story. Unfortunately, that biblical moment has become infamous because that part of the story has been magnified and even weaponized by some. But look at what's actually revealed in the story, Genesis 18. Then the Lord said, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin so grievous that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. Now this English word outcry, which is repeated in the passage, is the Hebrew word se'aka, literally meaning the cry of the distressed. And it is the same word that you'll find in Genesis 4 to refer to Abel's blood. Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. It's the same word that you'll run into later in Exodus 2 to refer to the enslaved Israelites. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out. The story of Sodom is infamous because of sexual perversity, but the cry that reached God's ear was the sound of injustice. The prophet Ezekiel says this, now this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. Now this is not to dismiss the sexual perversity of the city, it's just to say that the biblical theme is about injustice. There's a melody playing here. The scriptures contain a melody, an identical chord progression, just like Marvin Gaye and Ed Sheeran, remember? The lyrics and the recordings may sound different, but the melody is identical, and there's a familiar tune that's playing underneath the story we're reading. It goes something like, injustice makes a sound that God hears. God heard their groaning. And then just a few verses after that, we read, I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers and I'm concerned about their suffering. So God repeats himself. He, he says twice that the Israelites cried out, that he's heard it and that he cares. And that's important that God repeats himself because in the English language, if you're writing someone a letter and you want to show emphasis, then you use bold italics underline or most annoyingly, all caps. But in ancient Hebrew, which was primarily an oral culture, repetition was used to imply emphasis. For the ancient reader of Exodus, this is in all caps. Injustice makes a sound God hears. Let's keep reading. God heard their groaning and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about their suffering. So there's this biblical melody that gets repeated through peoples and eras and characters as the biblical story progresses. But there's also a key biblical event that harmonizes with that melody, a covenant. 
when God made a promise to an elderly couple named Abraham and Sarah who were unable to have children that they wouldn't only have a child, but that that child would grow into a nation. And it was through that nation that God would show the entire world what he's like. That's his redemption plan. And so as the melody of injustice keeps playing, a new note is added to the sound. God hears the sound of injustice and God remembers. So if you go back to Sodom, after the sound of injustice, we read God remembered. In the story of Hagar, who was left without home or safety, homeless and helpless with her newborn son, God remembered. Rachel and Leah, God remembered. Jacob in the wake of Laban's deception, God remembered. All of these memorable scenes from Genesis, all of them, God remembers. And then Exodus begins, the sound of injustice reaches God's ear when the enslaved Israelites cry out in prayer and we're told God remembered. It's the melody with a new note that was introduced generations ago. A new note that of course does beg the question, what did God forget? Short answer, nothing. This reference literarily has much more to do with the personal human experience of injustice than the divine response to injustice. In the words of biblical scholar Terence Fretheim, this does not refer to a jogging of the divine memory as if God had forgotten promises made. To remember is to be actively attentive to that which is remembered. It is a divine sense of obligation to a prior commitment. God remembered is a literary way of saying God has consistently acted decisively in the harshest conditions of injustice and among the worst of human suffering. And so we can expect God to act in the present in a consistent way with how he's acted in the past. God keeps his promises. He remembers his covenant. He is not absent-minded or distracted. So when you find yourself in distress, crying out to God, you can expect his response. And that response may not come in the form you're imagining it. And in my honest experience, it rarely comes at the timetable I'm imagining it. But you can expect God's response. The God who intervenes most powerfully in the midst of the bleakest injustice. That's the drama we're gonna focus on next week. But first, the story centers on a very unlikely candidate who will lead the rescue because not to get ahead of myself, but that's how God gets his work done. When God speaks to Moses from within the burning bush, he says, I've indeed seen the, slave, the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers and I'm concerned about their suffering. So I've come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land. This isn't uh, God's way of telling Moses that he suddenly recalled something quite important. It's God's way of telling Moses that he is exactly who he's rumored to be a God who keeps his promises. This is an invitation for Moses to trust in the present moment that God is exactly who he's revealed himself to be in the past, that Yahweh is a God who remembers. An invitation that Moses is going to find particularly challenging to accept because, well, we forget. And that brings us to our teaching text. So follow along with me from here in your Bibles, beginning in verse six. Sorry, beard interference. (laughs) 
Follow along with me in your Bibles. Let's pick up in verse six. This is God speaking to Moses from within the burning bush. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. Now, if you'll recall from a couple of weeks ago, the first couple chapters of Exodus have a subtext running beneath them that goes something like, we don't know when, but at some point along the way, Israel forgot God's name. You see, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, throughout the book of Genesis, God is revealed by the personal name Yahweh. And in spite of the great lengths the author of Exodus has gone to mirror the Genesis story and every last detail of his story, the one obvious absence is that the personal name Yahweh is replaced by the title Elohim. Uh, Instead of a God that I know and walk with and talk with, God is a distant deity. I've heard the rumors, sure, but I don't know the guy, not personally anyway. Yahweh in Genesis is replaced by Elohim in Exodus, and that is so important because in the Hebrew imagination, a name was so much more than just a collection of syllables by which a person was called. A name was a descriptor of one's character. It was the tightest possible summary of one's person. Uh, Israel had forgotten God's name, meaning they forgot what God is like. They forgot who God had already revealed himself to be. Yahweh in Genesis replaced by Elohim in Exodus until the burning bush. So let's nerd out a little bit on the voice of God to Moses from within that bush because there's something happening here that's really technical but super important and a theme to the unfolding story that moves ahead. Then he said, I am the Elohim of your father, the Elohim of Abraham, the Elohim of Isaac, and the Elohim of Jacob. Then Yahweh said, I've indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. So when God reveals something familiar about his character, meaning when the author of Exodus plays a melody that's been playing throughout the biblical story, it sounds like the familiar score of a film that comes underneath the climactic scene of the sequel. For the first time in Exodus, the personal name God has been revealed on the page, the very name that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob knew God by. But then this is what follows that revelation, verse 11. But Moses said to Elohim, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Again, in verse 13, Moses said to Elohim, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers sent me to you and they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? So the narrator makes a shift from Elohim to Yahweh, from a a title like Sir or Mr. to a personal name like Steve or John. A, A title implies respect, a Personal name implies intimacy. So the narrator moves closer from distant respect to upfront intimacy, but Moses stays back at a safe, distant respect. So God repeats his name to Moses. Only this time he introduces himself in the most personal way. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, Yahweh, The God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. God first introduces himself to Moses by the title Elohim of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Later, God reintroduces himself to Moses by the very personal 
Yahweh of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses remembered what he and all of Israel had forgotten, God's name. He remembered God's name, his person, his character, who God had already revealed himself to be. He's the one who hears the sound of injustice. He's the one who acts most decisively when the circumstances are darkest. In fact, God is sending Moses as his representative so that not just he, but all of God's people would remember the name of the one they've forgotten and the kind of God who is shepherding the story that they're in. What happened in between the first and second introduction? What happened that moved Moses from distant respect to up-close intimacy with God? Well, Moses voiced two objections, both of them phrased in the form of a question. Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And secondly, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your father sent me to you and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I tell them? Moses asked two questions. Who am I? And who are you? So I'm on that road trip with Fernando and he's just weeping at the thought of his kids, at the life that he could, could have had, at the man that he wasn't, and in his mind at least, the man it was too late to try to become. He's weeping because it was exposed, that part of himself that grace couldn't touch. And there's a word for that. The parts of ourselves that we keep in our imagination at least, outside of the reach of God's grace. There's a word for that. Shame. Shame is easy to feel, but it's hard to define because shame is a storyteller. It's a kind of guilt or insecurity that gets its talons into our identity, our sense of self. Guilt is I've done something wrong. Shame is something is wrong with me. There's this moment that Will Smith writes about in his memoir when he's just a kid and and he witnesses his father abusing his mother in broad daylight right there in the family living room, and he froze. Now, he's the oldest. He reimagines this as the defining moment when he was supposed to step up, when he was supposed to say something, when he was supposed to defend his mother to, to get in the middle of this somehow, but he just froze. And then his little brother, who had been standing behind him, nudged him out of the way, got in between the two of them, and defended their mother. His little brother filled his big brother role, and that, says Will, is the defining moment of my life. It is the one I've never stopped living in response to. It's the moment that I've never stopped trying to protect myself from ever being in again, and it is the person I've never stopped trying to prove that I'm not. That's shame. It's a part of me grace can't touch. And so instead of that moment being redeemed by the author, shame then gets to become the author. And my whole life is a response to the theme that shame introduced in that moment. Shame is the father who walked out on you before ever really caring to know you and somehow by his absence became the most present person in your life that you've never stopped living in response to. Shame's the way your first boyfriend made you feel when you were 15, who defined you by some minimization of your dignity, a feeling that you've never been able to completely shake since. 
Shame is that part of your family of origin that you always try to hide because you learned to when you were young. It's your parents' infidelity, or your mom's addiction, or your family's lack, or your family's plenty. Shame is the person that you never want to become, but you're afraid that you might be. And so the, the way that you want to be defined is to define yourself against this sort of person. Shame is a storyteller. It's the part of me grace can't touch. And so instead of being redeemed by the author, shame gets to become the author. And shame is a shorthand word for forgetting, for forgetting who God is and who I am. In the midst of shame, we should ask two questions, and they're the same two questions Moses asked at the burning bush. Who am I, and who are you? The first time in my life I can recall feeling shame, it happened for me a lot like it happened for Fernando when I was in the passenger seat of someone else's car. I must have been six or seven years old, and my grandfather was driving, and he had this amazing new piece of technology called a car phone. Do you remember those? That moment between landlines and cell phones when people were putting phones with cords just right there in the center console of only the most progressive and luxurious of vehicles. My grandfather got his hands on one of those and I could not keep my hands off of it. So he's driving us somewhere and I keep picking it up pretending to make calls and I'm pressing all of the buttons and I'm getting rowdier and rowdier in the way that I'm playing with this thing and he's getting more and more concerned about that rowdiness and we're going back and forth and eventually I grab it and pretend to take a call and I accidentally broke this little plastic piece off the console and he said, dang it, Tyler, I said to stop. And I froze because the man who to that point had only ever given me hard candies from his pocket and let me shoot his BB gun at soda cans and let me eat ice cream in his bed and roast marshmallows in his indoor fireplace, the man who let me break all of the rules for the first and only time yelled at me. And I froze. I know it's way too dramatic, but at that age, the, the truth is I just didn't feel safe in his presence anymore right there. Like all of a sudden, I didn't know who I was to him or who he was to me. What is that? It's shame. I did something that made him, a man that I knew so well, unrecognizable for just a moment, and my little forming brain could not deciphered the complexity of that moment, and so I tried to fix it. I'd done chores all day for my mom the previous Saturday, and I'd made 20 bucks. And so when he dropped me off at home, I took out a legal pad from the drawer, and I sat down at the kitchen table, and I wrote an I'm sorry note to my grandfather, and I promised to pay for the piece I broke on his car phone. And I folded it up around that $20 bill, and I got my mom to teach me how to address an envelope, and I put it in the mail to him. When I sat down in a chair at my childhood kitchen table and wrote out that note and folded it around the cash, I was really just trying to ask a man that I loved what I didn't know how to ask him. Who am I? And who are you? And three decades later, it was the same kind of shame that landed me in front of a therapist talking about anger. 
I can remember this one defining moment when I was yelling at three-year-old Hank in our apartment. When I was on another weekend, when I was supposed to be enjoying my children, but the stress of the week and the tension that I'd kept bottled in and my inability to control much of anything in my life, even the environment in my own home, all of it just spilled out of me and I was losing my temper, making demands on a three-year-old. He wasn't nearly old enough or mature enough to hold and it was like suddenly I could see myself. And I'd always just assumed I'd be a great dad. And I could see myself. And I wasn't the man that I wanted to be or the man I'd always assumed I would be. And so the successful young pastor who weaves words together on Sundays finds himself sitting in a chair in a therapist's office struggling for words to the question that he really wants to ask after a discovery that sobering, a question that's aimed less at the therapist right in front of him and more at the God he doesn't know how to talk to about this stuff. Who am I? And who are you? Shame landed me in a kitchen chair in my childhood home, writing a note around a $20 bill to my grandfather. Shame landed me in a therapist chair in my early 30s, talking about the seismic gap between who I want to be and who everyone thinks I am and who I actually am. Shame gets a lot less cute as we grow up, doesn't it? And both of those stories have redemptive endings, but Shame is the kind of enemy that keeps on nipping at our heels, that we never quite outrun, that never finds, stops finding new ways of getting our attention. Who am I and who are you? Yahweh takes those two questions as an invitation to remind us of what he remembers, but we tend to forget, and that's how God gets his work done. The burning bush, it's got the potential to read like an abstract mystical encounter by a shepherd who's just stayed out in the sun too long. The truth is, though, that God is initiating this conversation with Moses, not abstractly, but in the most personal way possible. And to grasp just how personal it is, you've got to know a little bit of Moses' story. He was born a Hebrew slave on an Egyptian plantation, adopted by the Egyptian king's daughter. He was raised in luxury and, pri and privilege, but all that luxury and privilege came on the backs of his own ancestors. And as he got old enough to realize this, I imagine there had to be occasions when he would step out onto the balcony that was likely off of his palace bedroom door and look down over the activity beneath him and see uh, people adding a wing onto his own mansion thinking, is that my father baking those bricks? Are these my siblings or cousins being scolded by that slave driver? Is that my mother with sweat running down the bridge of her nose? So Moses carried a complicated family with uh, history with him into throughout his childhood and then into adulthood. And first it was tension that he held in check and then he took matters into his own hands and all that tension spilled out of him in a moment of rage toward an Egyptian slave driver. And he killed this Egyptian to defend one of the ancestors that he had benefited from but never lived among and never suffered with. And then the next day he took the risk of including himself among those people to whom he thought he might belong are you here to kill us the way you killed the Egyptian? That was the response, and suddenly there it was. The very thing he thought he had kept hidden was exposed, and there's a word for that, remember? Shame. So Moses ran. 
He ran as fast as he could to start over somewhere else that his past couldn't haunt him anymore, somewhere he could reinvent himself. Midian, a place no one knew him, a place that he could try to forget, and that was 40 years ago. Shame. That's what Moses must have carried every day when he realized that he, one of the oppressed, was living in the house of the oppressor. Shame. That's what Moses felt when he tried to find his place among his own people. Shame. That's what haunted Moses all the way to Midian. Moses is shame grown up. Meanwhile, back in Egypt, God hears the cry of his people, remembers the promises that he never forgets, and acts decisively by going and finding a man whose shame got exposed and calling got lost. Read along with me, Exodus 3, picking up now in verse 4. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses, and Moses said, here I am. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. So when God speaks to Moses from within this burning bush, he targets the pressure point of his identity, the unhealed wound left behind in his past. Moses, Moses, I know your name. I'm the God of your father, of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. I know your name and you know mine. Moses, Moses, I know you. I really know you. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. It's a posture of shame. Who am I? Moses wants everything God's shown up to talk to him about. There's some deep place within him that craves liberation for the suffering and hungers for justice. But he tried that before, remember? He killed the Egyptian. He was ready to lead the revolution, but instead of glory, it was shame that crowned him. You got the wrong guy, Elohim. Who am I? And in response, God does not offer a long explanation, but a simple profound phrase, I will be with you. Well, who are you? Again, not a long explanation, but a simple promise. I'm Yahweh, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. I'm the God who has made himself known. I'm the God who hears the cry of injustice and acts, the God who specializes in shining brightest when the moment's gotten darkest, the God who's made himself known to your ancestors in ways you've heard rumors about your whole life but never experienced firsthand. It's a name, of course, but it's also an invitation. Will you trust me, Moses? Will you trust me that I am who I say I am? Trust me that I will be to you exactly who I was to them. Will you trust that though the characters and circumstances change, the melody keeps on playing, that I, the Lord, do not change. This is how God gets his work done. He heals the world by healing me. The two are inseparable from one another. God wants to deliver an Israelite people from unjust oppression with a dramatic yes to their cries and their prayers. So he goes and finds an Israelite who ran away in shame 40 years ago, who's hiding out from both the oppressed and the oppressor, who's found a way to live fine most days, but who does have this one part of their life that grace cannot touch. 
God intends to act decisively to show both the oppressed and the oppressor who he is and what he's like, and it's good news for the whole world. So God goes and finds a man with a biracial, multicultural upbringing who never quite felt a sense of belonging anywhere, a man with a heart for justice that has been swallowed up in shame, whose life has been defined by running from the place and the people and the identity that God called him to. God heard the cry of injustice, so he spoke to Moses until he finally got his attention. And that is how God gets his work done. Judas Iscariot is potentially the most tragic, unlikable character in the whole Bible. The greedy disciple who exploited Jesus, who sold the life of God for a handful of shekels, who in the end was so haunted by what he'd done that he couldn't live with himself. And after Jesus' crucifixion, Judas is last seen on the pages of Scripture in a setting eerily reminiscent of Moses. In a field alone, in a place where he'd run to try to escape himself, to try to outrun his shame, and it was there that he took his own life, made a casket out of his shame, and lied down in it. Matthew's gospel tells us that seeing what he had unfolded in his betrayal, Judas was seized with remorse, that he tried to return the shekels to the priest who didn't want anything to do with the blood money now. He tried to somehow undo what he had done with the consequences of his actions right there in full view. I have sinned, he said, for I've betrayed innocent blood. Dare we call that a confession? But of course, the priests he's speaking to don't have any power to forgive him, even if they'd been interested in doing so. Jesus, the one with power to forgive, was now standing trial, and Judas was cast off by those who'd used him to put Jesus there. You know, many look at the life of Judas as a theological inevitability. Cursed from the very beginning to play a villain role that somebody had to play, a tragic but necessary casualty in the redemption of the rest of us. And I'm not here to pretend there's not massive theological complexity and plenty of divine mystery wrapped up in this one member of the 12, but the question that I find myself asking as I look at the life of Judas in that shame-drenched casket is what if, what if Judas had not hung himself on that tree? What if he just held on for three more days? How might the resurrected Jesus have responded to the disciple who had so dramatically betrayed him? Well, how does God get his work done? Peter is perhaps the most well-known, likable of Jesus' cast of characters, but he's not so unlike Judas. I mean, within a few hours of Judas' kiss of betrayal, selling the Messiah for a handful of shekels, it was Peter who betrayed the Messiah three times as he warmed his hands over a charcoal fire, selling the Messiah for a moment of a blend in reputation. And Judas was the betrayer Jesus mentioned as he dipped his hand into the bowl at the Last Supper, but Peter was the betrayer Jesus mentioned on that very night in front of all of the rest of the eleven. Judas couldn't bear to look at Jesus on the witness stand, running to a faraway field. Peter locked eyes with Jesus on the witness stand, locked eyes with him right as the cock crowed, signaling his third denial, just like Jesus said it would. And it was Peter who couldn't bear to see him there after that moment, running out weeping. Judas' shame laid him in the ground to sleep for good. Peter's shame wouldn't let him sleep a wink, up all night fishing, days after the betrayal. 
And that's when Yahweh revealed himself to Peter in a scene not so unlike Moses. He's passing hours at work, just trying to keep busy and stay sane, trying to find a way to feel okay, to bear the shame, so long as he doesn't have to look right at it and he keeps his mind distracted. And then on the beach, there's a fire. It's not a bush that's on fire, it's a charcoal fire. And Yahweh calls to Peter from that fire in the form of the resurrected Jesus, Simon, do you love me? Simon, do you love me? Simon, do you love me? Three questions for three denials, all of them followed by the recommissioning, feed my sheep. And so it is Peter the betrayer who is recommissioned in the midst of his shame as the rock on whom Jesus will build the church. And it was Peter the betrayer who stood up on the day of Pentecost and preached a sermon that launched the whole movement to heal the whole world. And the rest is history. And that is how God gets his work done. He heals the world by healing me. And you cannot separate the two. So what if Judas had just held on three more days? It's a mystery we'll never know the answer to. I do find myself wondering, though, if the great tragedy of Judas Iscariot is not that he betrayed Jesus, it's that he did not stick around long enough to be redeemed. Because that's how God gets his work done. Grace that overcomes shame. It's just another note in that melody that has never stopped replaying underneath all of human history. What we can learn from Moses at the burning bush is at least this much, that God's calling on your life is far bigger than you've ever dared to imagine, and it is grace and only grace that equips and empowers you to carry that calling. Grace that you will never tire from bucking against and trying to throw off, always insistent on finding some other way in, but there is no other way in. In the words of Dane Ortland, only as we drink down the kindness of the heart of Christ will we leave in our wake everywhere we go the aroma of heaven and die one day having startled the world with glimpses of a divine kindness too great to be boxed in by what we deserve. And so I'll land here this morning. And he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Mount Horeb, that's where the bush was burning. That's where the encounter happened. This is the first mention in Exodus of a place that Moses is never gonna stop returning to. Horeb is the place where God's presence falls like a dense cloud. Horeb is the place that Moses receives the Ten Commandments. Horeb is the place that God gives Moses the blueprints of the tabernacle. Horeb is where heaven touches earth. Horeb is Eden. The first Eden is a place that we were naked and unashamed because we were without sin. The new Eden that God is remaking on the earth is a place where we are naked and unashamed, not because we are without sin, but because my naked vulnerability, my shame is uncovered and I discover there that God's grace is more powerful than my sin. The place where Yahweh healed his shame is the holy ground that Moses never stops returning to. And I used to picture Peter in that locking eyes with Jesus on the witness stand moment as the cock crowed and wince. I would wince not because I thought Jesus was looking at him with eyes of condemnation. I've always been sure that grace was the expression on his face, but because I could feel Peter's shame in that moment. I could feel what must have plunged into his gut that sent him running out of that courtroom. What I'm learning, though, is that this moment of weeping and sorrow, it was not a desolation, but a consolation. 
because of who Peter in his shame then discovered God to be, he could return again and again to that very place, the scene of his denial, not as a place to wince and run from, but as holy ground. This is the place his shame was healed. This is the place that Peter met the God he had convinced himself that he did not need and could live without, that he had convinced himself there was a way into this kingdom by some other way than sheer grace. It's the place he met the God who welcomed him by grace. And that's the Eden God's remaking in the world. It's not reclaimed places of human perfection, but reclaimed places of naked vulnerability where shame is washed away because God's grace is more powerful than my sin. Whoever you are and whatever you've done, I am utterly convinced of this, that there's more grace in God than there is sin in you or me. So Fernando's weeping next to me in the passenger seat of the car and my kids are asleep in the back. And the shame exposed him that day, it it wasn't simple. It didn't get created simply and it doesn't just go away simply. But the next time he was weeping with me was six months later when he was wrapping his arms around me and saying, I finally really believe that God forgives me. What does that mean for his relationship with his children? We're not sure yet. You know, life's not a Disney script and relationships are complex and that story's still very much in process. What does it mean for his relationship with God? It means Yahweh calls him friend and he calls Yahweh Lord. It means there's more grace in God than there is sin in Fernando. Hallelujah.